BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. The city of Sacramento has adopted an emergency ordinance aimed at better protecting patients and staff at reproductive health care clinics from harassment. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi has more. The city council unanimously approved the proposal earlier this week. It creates a buffer zone for patients and staff when entering these clinics. Anyone near a clinic who gets closer than eight feet without a person's consent could face potential criminal penalties. The plan would also give police the power to call for the immediate dispersal of groups who violate the ordinance. Violators could face fines of up to $25,000. Dr. Jessica Hamilton is Associate Medical Director for Abortion Services with Planned Parenthood representing the Sacramento area. Every day there is an attempt to shame us. Every day we're harassed. One of our nurses told me today that as she was walking into our health center, she was told over a loudspeaker that she is a worse human being than the shooter at Uvalde Elementary School who murdered 19 children and two teachers. Planned Parenthood officials say protester activity is up 25 percent from the same time last year. And since the leak of a draft opinion suggesting that Roe v. Wade could be overturned by the Supreme Court, harassment at clinics has only picked up. The ordinance is going into effect immediately, city officials say, in order to be prepared for an expected influx of out-of-state people coming to California for abortions if Roe is overturned. For The California Report, I'm Keith Mizuguchi. In a win for California employers, the U.S. Supreme Court Wednesday placed limits on a state law that lets workers sue over certain labor law violations even if they agree to arbitration. KQED's Rachel Myro explains. The Private Attorneys General Act essentially deputizes Californians, letting them sue on behalf of the state, especially in industries like agriculture and construction, where the state can't rein in widespread labor law violations. In Viking River Cruises versus Mariana, a majority of justices found federal law preempts state law. But Bill Gould, professor emeritus at Stanford Law, says there's a big hint in one of the concurring opinions that the state code could be tweaked. You can always go to the California legislature and get a new procedure which will uh, arguably pass muster under the Supreme Court's view of the Federal Arbitration Act. So while it's 1-0 for the employers now, Gould predicts this game ain't over. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. Some fire departments in the Central Valley say it's taking too long for the U.S. Forest Service to reimburse them for fighting fires on federal lands. 
Now, Democratic Congressman Josh Harder, who represents Modesto and Turlock, has introduced a bipartisan bill intended to speed up those repayments. Harder spoke about the problem at a House Agriculture Committee hearing earlier this year. It puts folks in a really tough spot, especially when we have very small fire departments or even volunteer fire departments to have a huge portion of their budget be very unclear for months, even up to a year or longer. The Fire Department Repayment Act of 2022 was co-authored by Republican Congresswoman Jamie Herrera-Butler of Washington State. Among other things, the bill sets standard operating procedures for fire suppression cost agreements and expedites reviews of those procedures. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. An advisory panel to the Food and Drug Administration voted unanimously on Wednesday to recommend both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for young children under the age of five. Babies, toddlers, and preschoolers have been the last age group here in the U.S. without access to the COVID vaccines. If all regulatory steps are cleared, the shots could be available as soon as next week. This comes at a time when California continues to see an elevated number of coronavirus cases and hospitalizations. To talk more about the pandemic, we're joined by Dr. Bob Wachter, chair of the UC San Francisco Department of Medicine. Dr. Wachter, thanks for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Let's start with the vaccine for young kids. How important is this moment now that all age groups appear they'll be approved for the COVID shots? I think it's very, very important for parents of young kids who have been fretting quite appropriately for over a year that kind of people have forgotten about them. Everyone is talking about how you have the means to protect yourself and and uh, many people have gone back to quote normal and yet they can't and they haven't because they've been scared for their kids. So uh, for many of them, this is kind of the beginning of a new era. My fear is that when you look at the vaccination rates in five to 11 year olds, which was approved you know, many, many months ago, it's not that high. So I think for some parents, they will, I think, correctly uh, give their kids their shots very quickly. And others, I think, will hesitate. If I had little kids, I would give them their shots the day it was available. 
Yeah, and here in California, only about 35% of kids aged 5 through 11 are fully vaccinated. There's obviously still a lot of hesitation among parents, like you said. Why do you think that is, and what would you say to ease their concerns? Well, I think it's because they perceive this vaccine as still being relatively new, although it really isn't anymore. It's been around for a year and has been billions of doses have been given, and it turns out to be extraordinarily safe. They also hear the reports that the kids don't get sick that often, and that is true. The kids certainly don't get sick as often as adults do, but they do, and there have been hundreds of deaths in kids. And to me, there's no question that the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the very, very, very small risk. And it's not only the benefits in terms of preventing a bad case and hospitalization and death, but the more we learn about long COVID, uh, the more worried I am about what the long-term consequences of infection are. So it's not just to try to prevent a bad uh, acute case of COVID. It really is also to prevent some potential long-term consequences that, that, that are, in many people are quite nasty. Let's turn to a broader look at the pandemic. Where does California stand right now? Are we in a surge? Yeah, we're in a we're in a weird surge. We've gotten used to surges that go up quickly and peak and then come down quickly. And that has played itself out over the course of a couple of months when, you know, on the prior surges. This one is sort of a slower uptake and a flatter plateau and a, I think I'm going to be a much slower uh, downslope. And the reason is we're in an Omicron surge, but we're actually in several Omicron surges because about every month or two, a new subvariant of Omicron seems to enter our world. Luckily, they haven't been more severe than the prior variants they replace, but each one is a little bit more infectious and each one is a little bit better at evading immunity, whether immunity is from vaccination or from a prior infection. So what seems to happen is, is you know, we have a surge and it would normally come back down, but just about when it's starting to come down, we get another version of the virus that enters our world and it's a little more infectious and, and sidesteps our immunity. And so you have another mini surge. And the, the result is a very, very long plateau. And that's where we are now. A plateau that's at a moderately higher rate than the national average, but about half, half again higher than the U.S. average right now. So California is not doing very, very well. You've been chronicling your wife's bout with COVID and now what appears to be long COVID symptoms. Has the experience taught you anything you might not have known about the virus? Well, I, yes and no. I mean, the no in that I have been worried about long COVID for a very long time. And really for the last year, since I've been vaccinated and boosted, I have said to people, I no longer am worried about dying from COVID. I mean, I'm, it, it does not feel like March 2020. What I am worried about is that a significant fraction of people who get COVID continue to feel bad, you know, months out. And there's also emerging evidence that having had COVID looks like it increases your risk, long-term risk years later, of things like heart attacks and strokes and diabetes. So my main reason for trying to continue to try to avoid getting COVID is this sort of long COVID, both symptoms and potentially long-term risk. So I knew that and was aware of it and, and very sympathetic. You know, I take care of patients for a living, very sympathetic of the concerns that I hear. But when you see, you know, you read in the newspaper, someone has continued fatigue and you say, oh, that doesn't sound so bad. When it's your wife, my wife's a journalist and an author and one of the most energetic person I know, when every day at two or three in the afternoon, she says, honey, I hit a wall, I need to take a nap for a couple of hours. That, you know, disrupts your life and is, you know, is, is, is the real deal. 
Uh, and so, you know, seeing what it looks like, and this is probably millions of people who a month or two after their infection still don't quite feel right. It's very much not nothing. Now, in her case, it seems to be getting slowly better, and fingers crossed it will continue to do that, and that's been true for a lot of people who've had long COVID. But I think when you hear about it, no, it's not being in the intensive care unit on a ventilator, and no, people are not dying of it, uh, but uh, I think we have to treat it with, with a healthy respect. And for me, it is the main reason that I'm still pretty darn careful trying hard not to get COVID, not so much worried about hospitalization and death, more worried about the long-term consequences. One thing you've been getting a lot of questions about is Paxlovid. Many people who test positive have taken the drug, your wife included. What should people know about Paxlovid? Yeah, so Paxlovid is, a, is, is an antiviral pill and has largely replaced monoclonal antibodies as the thing that you might take if you have a case of COVID and you're at high risk of a bad outcome. And so it's approved for older people and for people with medical comorbidities, medical uh, problems that put them at higher risk. It's a pill you take twice a day for five days. There are a number of drug interactions, so you've got to talk to your doctor or pharmacist and be careful. It, no question in the clinical trials, lowers the probability of needing to be hospitalized by about 90%. So very, very effective pill. Uh, a recent study came out and said, if you're younger and healthier, does it still work? And the answer is probably a little, but not worth it. So if you're a healthy 30 or 40 year old and you get COVID and, and you, particularly if you're fully vaccinated and boosted, which you should be, then it's the, the benefit of the pill doesn't outweigh the risk. There have been this, this phenomenon of long, of, excuse me, of rebound that my wife had where she took it, got better, and then a few days later got worse again and tested positive after having turned negative on her rapid test. We're seeing that every now and then. We still don't know the meaning of it, but I'd say on, you know, when I knit it all together, someone over about 55 or 60 or someone younger who is at high risk of a bad outcome, it still is the right thing to do to go ahead and take that medicine. That's Dr. Bob Wachter, chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. Dr. Wachter, thanks for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. California Fish and Game Commissioners are scheduled to meet again today to decide whether to list the iconic Joshua tree as a threatened species. That designation would make it harder to remove the trees for housing and energy projects. This comes after nearly 12 hours of public comment about the issue yesterday. One of those comments was from Pat Flanagan, who lives near the park and says Joshua trees support the lives of birds, mammals, reptiles, and insect species. A single Joshua tree generation can last 150 or more years while supporting multiple generations of animal species. A landscape without Joshua trees loses more than the trees. It loses the possibility of time for the cohabiting species to adapt to our climate change. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife has recommended against listing the species as threatened. The department acknowledged that areas suitable for the western Joshua tree's growth are likely to decline due to climate change by the year 2100, but said in an April report that the tree is abundant and widespread, which lowers the risk of extinction. That sentiment was echoed by Jocelyn Swain, speaking for the city of Lancaster. The Joshua tree is an important desert resource However, it is abundant throughout the Antelope Valley and many other high desert communities. The listing of this species would severely impact development by either adding costly delays or preventing developments which are vital to our economic health. A vote is expected later today. 
For going on a decade, the Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Plant has been the only active nuclear plant in California and the state's single largest source of electricity. It's been set for decommissioning over the next three years, but recently Governor Newsom has discussed delaying its closure to help offset possible energy shortages predicted in the next few years. KCBX's Benjamin Perper looked in on multiple gatherings this week to shed light on the range of views on the closure. The American Nuclear Society gathered in Anaheim on Monday morning to show support for Diablo Canyon's continued operation. The organization's president, Steve Nesbitt, directed the crowd for a photo op as they held signs saying, keep Diablo Canyon running and nuclear energy equals clean energy. What I think we want to do is to get folks to sort of line up in a nice... The plant is the largest source of carbon-free energy in California, accounting for about 9% of the state's total energy portfolio. Nesbitt says because of that and anticipated energy shortages, his group feels utility PG&E's planned decommissioning would come way too soon. We can't predict the future, but I do know this, based on what we know today, in 2024 and 2025, shutting down Diablo Canyon is a really, really bad idea. Nesbitt acknowledges Diablo Canyon may not need to stay open in the very long term, as there are environmental impacts associated with things like disposing of spent nuclear fuel. Eventually, he says other energy sources like solar and wind will take over Diablo's energy output, but that will take some time. All these things are there in the future, but for now, it's essential we keep our plants running for a while. But in a Wednesday Zoom panel, the San Luis Obispo group Mothers for Peace convened to discuss their safety concerns around the plant. They also worry the plant is crowding out other renewable energy sources that could be cheaper if nuclear wasn't there. Organizations like the American Nuclear Society point to federal and independent evaluations showing the plant is safe from things like earthquakes, tsunamis, and floods. But Linda Seeley with Slow Mothers for Peace doesn't trust that, given the plant's decades of operation. It's like a huge ball of accumulating terror for us here who live near Diablo Canyon. Heather Hoff is with a different Slow County nuclear activism group, Mothers for Nuclear. She's a Diablo Canyon employee in charge of the plan's emergency operating procedures. And while she made clear she wasn't speaking on behalf of PG&E, she does want to reassure people about the plant's safety. There's a lot of things that sound scary about nuclear. You know, the public hears these words and they're scared. So how do we combat that? With Governor Newsom's request for federal funds for Diablo Canyon still in process, it's not clear yet if decommissioning could be delayed. But with California aiming for net zero emissions by 2045, the plant's fate will play a major part in the state's energy future. And for the California Report, I'm Benjamin Perper in San Luis Obispo. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Healthcare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from DrinkHint.com. Hint, water with a touch of true fruit flavor. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. And that's the California Report for Thursday, June 16th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. 
Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.